Jonathan Edwards was a man who is probably the most well-known writer, theologian, and pastor of the pre-revolutionary colonial America. He was a very interesting and unique man. He was the only man or boy born of 12 children. Now, I can't imagine having 11 sisters in your home, and whether or not that's relevant to his decision-making is probably up to, to him. But at the age of 13, he left home and began starting his education at Yale University. Uh, now, not many 13-year-olds start college, but I think if you had 11 sisters at home, it might push you to try to make that decision. When he went to Yale University, his future father-in-law uh, was the president at Yale. He was also the founder of Yale University, and he excelled in his study. He was a brilliant young man. By the time he was 15, Jonathan Edwards had published several scientific articles in uh, science journals. By the time he was 18, he had already published a book. He was very brilliant. And then after three years of postgraduate theological training, he surrendered himself to the ministry. And after serving in several churches as an apprentice, he decided in 1733 to join his uh, grandfather, his maternal grandfather, as co-pastor of the Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts. And why that's unique is that at that time, that church in Northampton, Massachusetts was the largest and most wealthy church in the whole colony, probably the largest and wealthiest congregational church that was in New England. Less than two years after joining with his grandfather as co-pastor, his grandfather passed away, and at the age of 26, he became the pastor of the largest and most wealthy congregational church in that area. Now, Jonathan Edwards and his church were evangelical reformed, and they came out of the Puritan tradition. So if you know anything about the Puritan tradition and what the religious background and foundation of our nation was founded on, it was a very strict reformed theology based in Calvinistic theology. And while Edwards began to preach there, after he'd been there about three years, an incredible revival began to break out. A spiritual awakening broke out in Northampton. And within a six-week time period, over 400 people gave their life to Jesus Christ. This sparked an awakening that began to spread that within two years, it spread not only from Massachusetts to New Jersey to New York and all up and down the eastern seaboard. Now, in church work, we call this the Great Awakening. It's now known as the First Great Awakening. But it was a Great Awakening. It was a revival movement that began in this church in Massachusetts and spread throughout all of colonial America. It was so well known, it lasted for 15 years, that news of it began to spread to England, and they began to experience revival. And on the continent, they began to experience revival. And George Whitfield, a well-known pastor in Europe and England, came to visit Edwards' church and preach and re-sparked that revival. And it was an incredible move of God that we haven't seen uh, really like that on that scale since. Even the Second Great Awakening, which took place about a hundred years or really about a hundred years later, was not on the same scale as the First Great Awakening. And Jonathan Edwards in 1741, in the midst of that revival, preached what is probably his most well-known sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
Now, if you had to study English literature, especially American English literature in college, you probably read it because many people still study this sermon today, especially in theological schools and in literature, because it is an incredible sermon that uses an allegory of, of how dangerous it is to be lost in the world today. And, and as a naturalist, Edwards painted a picture of a spider in a, in a web, barely hanging onto the web, hanging off the, the danger of falling. And he used that as an illustration for Christians and for those who don't know God of falling. It was an incredible revival. And later on, Edwards would go on to become the president of Princeton University. His son became president of Princeton University. His grandson was president of Princeton as well. One of his grandsons was the third vice president of the United States, Aaron Burr. Uh, He traces his lineage all the way down through at least six presidents uh, and so many representatives and senators that you can't count. He was a a unique and dynamic man. Some of the illustrations they used of the First Great Awakening is one of the stories they used to tell is that because of what God was doing in the the eastern seaboard, many of the, um, the, the docks were having problems loading the ships. Because the mule skinners who would take the mules with the, the implements and bring them to the docks, the mules stopped listening to the people that were controlling them because they had been trained to follow curse words. And when the mule skinners were getting saved, they were committing themselves not to curse anymore so the mules wouldn't go. That's how much this revival was impacting it. And one of the things that's unique is this is the first instance, this first great awakening that we have in the modern church of what many of us would call today charismatic practices. They had falling out in the pews. They had people shaking under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They had people that were standing up and speaking in tongues in the service. Now, Today, we might think that would fall into the charismatic realm, but remember, these are unemotional Puritans in their service, and that's what they are experiencing. It was incredibly unique. When you think about this great awakening, if you've ever been a part of a revival, a great awakening and the spirit moving in people's hearts and in people's lives, one of the ironies of the first great awakening is that when what we know about Jonathan Edwards is he was not a dynamic speaker. Matter of fact, Jonathan Edwards had horrible eyesight. He couldn't see barely uh, in front of his face. And so when he would preach, he would take his sermons, which were 45 minutes to an hour long, and he would read straight from manuscript, and he would hold it up in front of his face, and he spoke in a monotone language. There was no emotion, no inflection in his voice. Now, I wonder what would happen today if a pastor stood up and began to read his sermon in a monotone voice for an hour, how he would respond. See, that goes against everything that, that we learn today in church. Today in church, we are so trained that somehow the pastor or the preacher has got to, to be relevant, and he's got to be funny, and he's got to be dynamic in his presentation, and it's got to be uh, something that keeps our attention, especially if it's short. That keeps our attention. And so how in the world did revival break out in a church that was a puritanical Reformed church when the pastor was a monotone, non-dynamic speaker that just read his sermons. What was the secret? 
Yet for all that Jonathan Edwards did, the power of God was so evident during the Great Awakening that it touched and changed the religious nature of America that still resonates today. The foundations that we have in the church today and the influence that Christianity has in our culture was a direct result of that first Great Awakening. Now, I mentioned Jonathan Edwards because Jonathan Edwards had a lot in common with the Apostle Paul. See, church tradition tells us while the Apostle Paul was a brilliant, incredibly smart man who studied at some of the greatest schools and under some of the greatest teachers of his time, he was also almost blind. Many people think that his thorn in the flesh that he mentions in 2 Corinthians is his eyesight. He couldn't see. That's why in most of his letters he talks about having a secretary, an amanuensis, who would read his letters for him and write his letters for him because he had a difficult time seeing anybody. Church tradition holds that Paul was much shorter than the normal man of his day. He, he was short in stature. He was not a dynamic personality. He's not somebody that had a charismatic personality that drew people to him. Couldn't see. Horrible eyesight, not a charismatic personality, and most people believe that he was not a dynamic teacher or preacher. Yet he was the greatest Christian missionary that the church has ever seen. And more than half of the New Testament is his teaching and his words. How? Both of these men, if you, if you stuck Edwards and Paul in a room, you couldn't pick them out because of their personality. You couldn't pick them out as someone who you would think would be dynamic and influential, yet God used both of them to shape their times and to change their worlds for the cause of Christ. What was their secret? When our passage this morning, I think Paul is going to hint at what allowed both of them to be used by God to change their culture. But it's not just a secret that they used. It's some truth that you and I need to understand that I believe is missing in the church today. That I believe is something that is missing in many of our lives today that if we could learn to apply it to our lives, it would change our culture. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 1 through 5. Now, I have to tell you, this is a passage that I try on Sunday mornings before I come in here uh, to really read and to pray through because it is a reminder of me why I do what I do and what is important about what I'm doing in here on Sunday mornings. Now, to remember the context, just to catch you up shortly and quickly from where he was, he's been talking about the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world. And then last week, Paul revealed the type of people that he, God uses to change the world. And you remember the description he used, that they were weak, that they were foolish, and that they were lowly, which we found last week that that is a, a, a criteria that most of us in this room can meet. Those are the type of people that Paul used. And then he's going to take it a step further this morning to begin to show how he uses the foolish, the weak, and the lowly to change the world through their message. So what was the secret of their message? Listen to what he says. When I came to you, brothers. Now, 
for, for context, remember how Paul got to Corinth. Remember, this is Paul's second missionary journey. He is traveling in Asia and some of the churches he reached in his first missionary journey. He gets what's called a Macedonian call. God puts on his heart that I am to go and, and go over to Macedonia, which is Greece, and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he goes over, and the very first place he lands is in Philippi. And in Philippi, while he is preaching, he gets imprisoned, he gets beaten, then he gets run out of town. So he leaves Philippi and he goes to Thessalonica. And when he's in Thessalonica, he preaches, then he gets beaten and he gets thrown out of town. So he goes to Berea. And while he is preaching in Berea, he gets arrested, he gets thrown out of town. Then he goes to Athens, which is the largest city in Greece. And he is mocked and he is scoffed. Remember the preaching on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 15. He's preaching about uh, the, the unknown God, talking to the philosophers, and they mock him and they laugh at him. And so then he goes to Corinth, Acts chapter 18. And as he's in Corinth, the first thing he does is go to the synagogue and begin to preach, and they reject him. And so then he goes to the, a store next door, buys it, and spends the next year and a half preaching to the Gentiles in this church. So he says, I want you to remember, this is how I came to you. This is how I I approached you. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with trembling. And my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. See what he's telling us is he's saying, you remember when I came to you that all along the way, when I was in Philippi, when I was in Thessalonica, when I was in Berea, when I was in Athens, and when I got to Corinth, I preached the same message. It didn't change. I didn't adapt it. I didn't move it around. It was the same message all along. And what was that message? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus in the cross. He said, I am resolved. And in the Greek, it uses a word there that means a deliberate decision. He committed Himself when He went to Macedonia that His focus, that His heart, that His passion, that His message was going to be centered around one thing and one thing only, Jesus Christ and the cross. He didn't preach that Jesus was a good teacher. He didn't preach that Jesus was a role model, that Jesus was a man of purpose, that Jesus was a great example to follow. He didn't even preach that Jesus was a martyr. He preached that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave His life on the cross so that you might live. And it was that message, it was that theme, it was that thrust that changed the culture. We learned a couple of weeks ago that People can come and and they may be turned off by the message of the church. They may reject the message of the church. But when you hear the message of the cross, when you hear about what Jesus Christ did on the cross, you are compelled to make a decision. And you'll either make one of two decisions. Either you'll walk away thinking that that sounds like foolishness or you will understand that it is the power to change your life. That it is the power of salvation. It is the power of forgiveness. That it was at the cross that Jesus brought forgiveness into the world. It was at the cross that Jesus gave us grace and mercy and showed His unconditional love. Without the message of the cross, there is no Christianity. So Paul said, when I came to you, I was committed to teaching about the cross. 
Paul said, I wasn't interested in making you followers of Paul. I wasn't interested in making you disciples of Paul. I was interested in you being disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. He's saying here that I'm not trying to convince anybody. Not trying to change anybody's mind. What he is looking for, what he was preaching for, was for God to be able to change spiritual hearts. You see, I learned early on in my ministry, I might can change your mind. My preaching, my, my storytelling, my way of uh, teaching and preaching might can change your behavior. But I can't change your heart. Only God can change your heart. And the message of the cross is a message of change. I remember when Billy Graham went to Russia in 1982. For some of you that don't remember that, it was a revolutionary event because there had not been a Christian, American especially, but a Christian teacher or preacher invited to preach in that communist country during the Cold War. And so Billy Graham goes and he preaches in 13 churches in 1982. And when he gets back, there are people that begin to condemn him. I don't know if you remember, but there were people that were criticizing him. They were saying, why didn't you speak up for human rights while you were preaching in those churches? Why didn't you, you speak up for the persecution of Christians in Russia while you were in those churches? And Billy Graham replied with a simple answer. He said, I was invited and I was called to preach Jesus Christ and the cross of Jesus Christ. And I believe that if I preach that message, the power of that message could change hearts. And when it changed hearts, it could change all of those other things. You see, he recognized that if he would have gone into Russia and he would have used the pulpit as an avenue and a means to criticize human rights violations or to criticize the persecution of the church, that it would turn off most of his audience and he'd never get invited back. Oh, it might convince one or two people of wrongdoing. But he recognized that if he preached the cross of Jesus Christ, that it would change lives for eternity. And in those lives being changed, it would open the door to more change. And that's exactly what happened in the next 10 years in Russia. Today in the church and as pastors, we are told that we need to be more relevant in our sermons. We need to be more needs-oriented if we're ever going to reach the next generation for Christ. They tell us, listen, you've got to be focused on, on short little sermons that will tell people how they can have a better marriage and how they can have a better workplace and how they can raise their kids. And everything needs to be focused on answering questions and needs. And I would suggest that Paul had the right idea that what our culture needs is more Christ and Christ crucified. That the most relevant message that can be preached today is the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's that message that will meet every need. See, I can get up here and I can tell you how to be a better husband, how to be a better wife, how to be a better friend, how to be a, a better co-worker, but none of that matters if your heart hadn't been changed by the power of the cross. It's that power, it's that message that the world is looking for. Now there are a couple of things I just want to point out real quickly that we can learn from what Paul describes in this passage that are much more important, I think, than us ever being relevant or us ever having shorter sermons or more illustrations or more entertainment. I think these two principles are the most important aspect of Christians allowing their voice to be heard. The first thing he says there is he says, I didn't come to you with eloquence or superior wisdom. I came to you in weakness. I came to you in fear and I came to you in trembling. 
See, one of the things that we can learn from Paul is that Paul had a transparent humanity. What does that mean? Paul was real. Paul was genuine. Paul wasn't coming to them as some kind of super Christian that had all the answers. Somebody that was preaching down to them. Paul came and from the very point that he began to start, the very beginning of his ministry, he preached that he had struggles, that he had fears, that he felt inadequate. He admitted he made mistakes. He admitted that he had faults. He admitted that he struggled with sin. Paul was genuine. What you saw was what you got. He didn't put on airs. He didn't try to be something that he wasn't. He didn't try to put on a spiritual show. He said, listen, I struggle. I have fears. I'm intimidated to preach this message. For far too long, the church and Christians have acted like they had it all figured out. Too many Christians act like they have the only answers. And not only is that disingenuous, but it's also hypocritical to a lost world. It's time for the church to be real. It's time for us to be honest. I remember when I was in seminary, they told us in preaching class that as you're preaching, don't tell too many stories about your personal life that might reflect badly on you because people won't respect you. And I remember sitting in class when the pastor was saying that and the professor was saying that, I thought, well, crud, that means I won't get to tell any personal stories because I'm the idiot in all my stories. All of my stories reflect bad on me. And I thought, if if we're the hero of all of our stories, how are people going to relate to us? We need to let people know, I'm just like you. I struggle. I have anger issues. My marriage is not perfect. I'm not the perfect dad. I don't have all the answers. I stumble. But I have a God who can change my life. And over time, He is making me better and He is changing me. See, I'm not here as a pastor to walk over you. I'm here as a pastor to walk beside you. So that you can pick me up just as much as I pick you up every time we fall. You've got people in your life that don't need to be preached at or preached to. They need people that are going to be real and genuine and walk beside them and let them know, I've been there, I am there, but I'm going to a better place. Paul called himself in the Bible the chief of sinners. He said, I'm the worst. For counting who's the bad sinner, I'm the worst. Paul said in the book of Romans, he said, I I know what the Bible says I'm supposed to do, but my flesh wants to do what is wrong every time. I struggle with it. Paul said in Philippians, he said, I have not already obtained all of this or already been made perfect. What was he saying? He was saying, listen, I'm still learning. I, I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything. I always wonder in church, why do we try so hard to project something that we're not? Why do we try to, you know, we, we, we're real in our houses and then we come to church and we put on one side and we go to work and we put on another side. And when we're around Christian friends, we put on this face. And when we're around this group of people, we put on this face. That doesn't magnify your message. That mutes your message. The world is looking for people that are real, that are the same at home as they are at church, as they are at the ball fields, as they are at school. All of us struggle. The world is looking for people that are genuine, people that are honest. Because if we're not honest with ourselves, if we're not honest 
with those around us, then we'll never grow in our Christian walk. I always used to laugh when I did marriage, pre-marriage counseling. I used to have them early on in my ministry fill out a personality worksheet. And uh, the goal was is they would fill out this personality worksheet and then I would kind of grade it and look at it. And then we would come back together and we would talk about where their personalities are together and where their personalities are going to conflict. And say, look, these are going to be some things you're going to have to worry about. And these are going to be. But what I found over time is none of them were filling it out honestly. They weren't filling it out about who they really were. They were filling it out about who they wanted to be. And by filling it out about who they wanted to be or what type of person they hoped to be when they got married, that didn't help us learn how they could grow. Didn't help us give us a a bottom line to say, look, here's some things that you could change. And so all we got were pat Sunday school answers that didn't change anything. And that's the way so many Christians live their lives. We need to be genuine and real. And that means not always knowing the answer. That means not always making the right choice. But that means that we trust God to help us grow and learn from our mistakes. Acting like you don't have any mistakes doesn't do anything for your message, but shut it off to a lost world. Now, a word of warning. I know in the church world today, our problem is we go to extremes. We go from this side, from way over here, to this side, way over here, and we don't find any balance. You understand the Bible, the Christian walk, is all about balance. What Paul teaches in the book of Ephesians is about finding balance. Spirit and truth, which is what we base our worship on. If you move too much in spirit, then you can get over into uh, charismatic experience where your experience is more important than truth. You start saying, it doesn't matter what the Word of God says, this is what's happening in my life. Well, if it's happening in your life and it's not backed up by the Word of God, it's not biblical. Or truth, we get way over here on this side where we are all about truth, and truth is the only thing that's most important, and we shut down any move of the Spirit. And you get those churches that it's about coming, and we're going to study the Word of God, we're going to talk about the Word of God, and then we're going to leave. You never experience the power and fresh touch of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, find a balance where you stand on the truth of the Word of God, but you also let the Holy Spirit move. And we need to find a balance on on being genuine. So many people move from this this idea of what people expect church people to be. And we put on airs and we act like things and we talk. You know, we have our own lingo and our own language and all the things that we've talked about before. And instead of finding a balance to where they can just be me, they rush over to this side and try to be so much like the world. Because they think if I'm like the world, then that makes me real and genuine. I've had people come to me and say, oh, pastor, have you heard so-and-so? Man, he is, he is the most real and genuine pastor I've ever heard. He cusses in his sermons, and he talks about doing whiskey shots in his sermons. Listen, that's not real. That's immaturity. Me being real is not about me being more like you. Me being real is me being me. And it's time for us to understand that the way the Word of God moves through us is when we're transparent, when we're genuine, when we let people see who we really are. But not only was He transparently human, but He also said, I didn't come to you with wise or persuasive words or eloquence or superior wisdom. Paul had a genuine humility. Paul recognized that it wasn't about him. See what the church is missing today, what's missing in our message 
is not shorter sermons or more illustrations or more bang, more entertainment. What the church is missing is genuine humility and transparent genuineness, humanness. Paul said, listen, I, I, don't, I don't have all the answers and I'm not, I, don't, I don't speak like what you might think I should speak and I'm not going to say all the right words. Because Paul recognized it wasn't about him. It was about God in him. What about him trying to convince anybody? He was just an instrument. See, my, my goal as the pastor here on Sundays is I don't want you to walk out of here and say, that was a great sermon. It makes me feel good. But that's not what I want. I want you to walk out of here and say, that was a great Savior. Because what we do here is not about me. It's not about what I'm trying to project. Paul said, it's not about me. It's not about who I am. I don't, Paul said he didn't want them to be impressed with him. He wanted them to be impressed with God. He didn't want them to be impressed with how funny he could be or how many great stories he told. He wanted them to be impressed with the cross. He wasn't interested in building a kingdom of his own. He wasn't interested in having his own followers. Too many pastors, too many churches get those things confused and it diminishes the power of God. People worship a pastor, they worship a preacher, they worship a Christian leader. And all that does is take your eyes off of what's really important. Please understand, there's no power in my words. There's no power in my illustrations. There's no power in my explanations. The only power that happens here is through the Holy Spirit. And that happens most of the time in spite of me. Most of the time, it's my job to get out of the way and stay hidden in the cross so that He can speak. And that's your job as well. So your job's not to convince. Your job's not to dazzle. Your job is not to tell how great your Christian walk is. Your job is to hide yourself in the cross and let God's Word move through you. So many of us get confused and we somehow think that God needs us. Somehow maybe I'm doing God a favor by doing all this stuff for Him. We forget that you know, God used a donkey to speak one time. That's about where we rate. Full, weak, lesser than, right below the donkey. James tells us that God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. You know what humility is? Humility is not thinking less about yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. I remember a missionary that visited one of our churches. Came up and shared all that God was doing, showed videos, and it was incredible to hear the story and had a question and answer. And somebody in the back said, excuse me, he said, how many converts did you have this year? The missionary replied, I didn't have any converts, but God had over a hundred. He got it. See, sometimes we think that God depends on us. He doesn't. I've got to know just the right words, and I've got I've to have this kind of lifestyle. That's why people say, well, I can't teach because I'm, I'm not ready, and I don't know enough, and I'm not trained enough. That's not what God needs you for. He needs people who are humble, transparent, and available. Not somebody who has all the answers. Not somebody who's figured it all out. 
please remember, it's not about how much you know or how well you can present it. It's about who you know and how much you can get out of the way and let God speak through you. Paul says here at the end in verse 5, I don't want anyone's faith dependent on his wisdom. He said, I don't want anyone's faith dependent on how well I can share the story. I don't want anyone's faith on how well I can present this stuff. I want people's faith to be built on the power of the Word of God. It's a struggle for a pastor. Because in churches, we count success by numbers. I remember one of the first ministerial conventions I went to, one of the last ministerial conventions I went to, and that's not to say they're bad and there's a lot to learn from them. But I remember going and sitting around a group of people and pastors I didn't even know, and they began to talk. And they were, how many people have you got saved at your church? How many people did you baptize? How many people you got coming? And so you hear all of this stuff, and in a pastor's mind, it's easy to begin to think, I can be a success is, is the more people I can get to respond. The cool ministerial term is aisle traffic. How much aisle traffic you got? I said, well, I don't have any aisle traffic. I don't even open the aisles. But you see, the temptation is to say, well, for me to be a success, I've got to have aisle traffic. So that means I've got to put more pressure and I've got to, to maybe bring a little more guilt and maybe bring a little more condemnation. Listen, I've been doing this 30 years. I know how to preach a message that'll make you cry. I know how to preach a message that'll make you feel guilty. I know how to preach a message that'll make you feel convicted. I even know how to preach a message that'll make you want to get up and come down and weep at the altar. But you see, I don't want you to make a decision of Christ because I convinced you. I don't want you to make a decision for Christ because I guilted you into it. Because what I've learned is that if I can convince you to do that, somebody else can come along behind me and convince you to walk away. But when the Spirit of God touches your heart, when I get out of the way and God's Spirit begins to move through this place and the power of His Word begins to change your life and it convinces you and it changes you, there's nothing that will ever take it away. That's what the church is missing. And the thing about it is you and I are called to speak up. You and I are called to share. And every one of us in this room has a pulpit. It may not look like this and be at the front of the church, but it may be in your classroom, or it may be in your workplace, or it may be at the ball fields, or it may be in your living room with your family. But every person that God saves, He's given you a message, and He's given you a place to be able to share that message. And I want you to hear me. The world doesn't need to hear from any more perfect religious people or hear any more cool catchphrases, or another evangelism program. What the world needs to see and hear is real, transparent, and humbled people that are focused on the cross of Jesus Christ. They need you to argue, or to convince, or to debate, but to simply let the truth and power of this Word live out in our actions and our words. When I was in seminary, I loved reading. Those of you that know me, I loved study. Uh, I, I'm continually reading and studying. I, I love the idea of education. I don't like school, 
Okay, there's a difference. Uh, people say, well, when are you going to go back and get your Ph.D.? Or when are you going to go back? And... I don't like school. Uh, I don't like the structure of school. It's probably my ADD. But I love education. And I love reading. And I love learning stuff that I've never learned before. And I hope that 30 years from now, if God gives me that time, I'm just as hungry to learn as I am now. And I loved it at the seminary where I went to because they had a collection in their library of all of these incredible written sermons by some of the greatest pastors in history. And I remember going to the library in my off times or during my lunch break and just checking out some of these sermons. And you could get sermons by Jonathan Edwards and Whitfield and Spurgeon. And you could go and begin to read these sermons. And they had sermons on tape from some of the great preachers of the 20th century. And I remember going and getting R.G. Lee, who was a great pastor, Baptist pastor, and his great sermon, Payday Sunday, and listening to it and might, taking notes and trying to learn from it. And I remember listening to Herschel Hobbs and Adrian Rogers and, and, and guys like W.A. Criswell that I mentioned and, and listening to those sermons on tape and taking notes. And, and I went back and we could watch. And so I went back and watched a lot of the sermons of Billy Graham from his 1950s crusade. And though you that, that don't know anything about that, that 1950s crusade that he had in California and Los Angeles that was supposed to be a three-day event that turned into a six-month event was an incredible powerful move of God. And I remember watching those sermons. I remember watching his sermons all the way into the 80s. And there's something that jumped out of all those messages. Something that I just couldn't shake. And I challenge you, go watch a Billy Graham crusade. Go and listen to some of his old sermons. They were so, so simple. There was no deep theology there was no running around and having you think through this and think through that and do this step and do that step. They were just a very simple presentation of Jesus Christ in the cross. And thousands and thousands and thousands got saved. See, I believe that maybe what the world needs... Maybe what the world is looking for is not to be entertained. It's not for us to try to be more relevant. Maybe what the world needs is the power of the Spirit of God that's found in the cross of Jesus Christ, lived out and preached by humble, genuine, transparent Christians. I think Paul would tell us that's the secret. Let's pray.